All right, so what we've been doing is working our way through these questions in the catechism. I invite you to turn in, in your own copy, uh, or you can use the um, uh, Trinity hymnal somewhere around page 870. We're looking at question uh, 21. And let's just remember, why do we have a catechism? A catechism, of course, its very structure of question and answer is meant to be a teaching tool. So you ask the question and you respond with the answer and it's just meant to uh, teach you. Uh, but what is it teaching you? Well, the catechism is meant to teach you the basics of theology. Now, that's an important thing to, to, to point out. It doesn't teach us every last thing that we could possibly know about what's in the Bible, but it does teach us the basics. And in fact, it's very hard to figure out some of the deeper things without sort of having the basics in place. So this is, this is kind of foundations 101 level stuff. And so uh, that's why we're taking our time to work, you know, work our way through it. Uh, again, the catechism is not scripture. The catechism summarizes what we believe. And some people will ask the question, well, you know, I, I don't need catechisms. I don't need confessions. I don't need creeds. My only creed is Jesus or my only creed is the Bible. You've probably heard something like that. And of course, that's complete nonsense. Can I say that? Yes, I'll have to say that. It's complete nonsense. Because if you go to that person, you say, Jesus, oh, who is Jesus? After all, the Muslims next door think that Jesus is nothing more than a great prophet who led the way for Muhammad. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses think that Jesus is a man who took on some extra qualities, but wasn't quite God. So the minute I ask you, who is Jesus, and you answer that question, guess what you've done? You've done theology. So imagine that every single time you have to explain to somebody what it is that you believe the Bible teaches about who God is, about who we are, about how he became a man, how he saved us, about sin, about the end times, about angels. Imagine that every single time you had to give an answer verbally from on top. Sooner or later you sit there and say, you know, can I just write this down? And you write it down and the next time they ask you, you say, here, read this. That's all a confession and a catechism is. It simply summarizes what it is that you believe the Bible teaches. In this case, what the church has uh, gathered in its, uh, its collective wisdom. So, very good. Well, we've got question, uh, I'm sorry, did I say question 21? That is the right question. Oh, I am. Yeah, every now and then I, it takes me a moment. Um, and we're doing that in two parts. Today is part two. So let's go ahead and uh, just have somebody read the question and answer. 21, please. Great. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate that. All right. So last week, just by way of review, we focused on the first part of that answer. And as we've said before, the catechism writers love commas. But it's not because they failed grammar school. It's because they use them to delineate phrases. Each one is like a little bite-sized point that they want to make. Kind of like think of it as bullet points. Like, you know, who is the redeemer of God's elect? Bullet point one, the only redeemer of God's elect. So it starts with that word only. We looked at that last week. We said that that only is so important because all throughout Scripture we find, uh, we find statements like, well, Jesus himself saying in Matthew 4.10, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You know, only. God alone is worthy of our worship. John 17, 3, the only true God. And then we get John three sixteen, the only begotten son. We begin to see the importance of this only. So we saw that last week. 
We saw in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. The idea that Jesus is the only means of salvation, and we said that changes everything. We talked about how today there's this uh, push uh, towards an ecumenical movement, although it's a false ecumenism. And it's this idea that we're going to sit down with uh, world religions. You know, I was reading just the other day about the Dalai Lama talking with Thomas Merton, who was a Trappist monk, and how they all found some common ground. Common ground, whenever we do that in Christianity, what we're saying is we don't have the complete answer. We have part of the truth, and you come to us, and you've got part of the truth, and we're going to dialogue, and I'll take some of your truth, and you take some of my truth, and so on. Uh, To say that we only have part of the truth is to deny Jesus, because Jesus said... I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, everything that we need then is found uh, within, uh, within Scripture and within the things of Jesus. So uh, let's go ahead and set that aside for now. Uh, not aside, but uh, just by way of review, we'll leave that behind. And so the only part, and of course um, the big passage we looked at uh, uh, as well was uh, Jesus. Uh, sorry, got a little off here. Nope, I guess we did already say that. Yeah, universalist way of salvation and so on, all that other stuff. So Jesus is the only way, uh, the only mediator and so on. So we'll leave it at that. Okay, now why is Jesus qualified? This is what we're going to look at today. Why is Jesus qualified to be the only redeemer? What makes him so special? And the answer is quite simply uh, what comes after Uh, that portion of the question. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal son of God, became man. And so there is the answer. The reason that Jesus is qualified to be uh, the only redeemer is because he is both truly God and truly man. And we want to go ahead and and take a look at what that means. Let's see if I can uh, break it up this way. So we're talking about two different natures of God, of of Jesus. He is both truly human in every single way, and yet he is God. Now, the human part, I'm not going to defend a whole lot. There have been actually, at times in church history, there was a a group of guys uh, who believed in early church history that Jesus was not truly human, uh, that he was more like an apparition. Uh, They were called docetists, docetism. But for the most part, usually there's been very little debate that he really was a human being. Uh, There's plenty of scriptures that talk about his being born, his suffering, his being tired, his needing to eat. So let's, um, unless we really need to, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time defending uh, that Jesus was human. Uh, Let's take a little bit of time and talk about Jesus being God. One of the things you often hear is, well, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever say he's God. That's just an invention of Paul or something. Have you ever heard that? It happens. People um, will want to go for that. So let's look at some of these passages, and we're going to do like we do before. I'm going to give you these passages, ask that you all look them up. Um, Is Jesus God? And the first thing we see is that he is actually called God. And we're going to see that in 
And uh, let's have some folks look this up. Isaiah 9, 6. And John 20, 28. Now see, if you guys were sitting up close, where the holy people sit, you'd be able to, you'd be able to read this. <laughs> Hang on, let me write these. I'm going to do what I don't normally do, which is write these down and be so you're not all left. Um, okay, then he's... He has the attributes of God, John 1, 1, John 2, 24. If I put an F, does everybody know what that means? That means the following verse, right? If I put two Fs, it means following whatever verses follow until the end of that section. I probably should have done those in different um, different colors but that's what you get uh, so so then he also does all the mighty works of God John 5:21 Colossians 1:16 that's a six. Do I want to do some stuff? Oh, he receives worship. Worshiped as God. Yeah, that's going to be harder for you guys to read this one, so. Again, John 20, 28. And Revelation 5. Okay, so is Jesus God? Well, he is called God, and I'm going to ask you all to look those up and, or read them in just a moment. Isaiah 9, 6, John 20, 28. He has the attributes of God, John 1, 1, John 2, 24, and 25. Um, he does the mighty works of God, John 5, 21, Colossians 1, 16, and then he receives worship. He's given worship as God himself, John 20, 28 again. Revelation five twelve through fourteen. So let's go ahead and look these up and see if uh, if the assertion's not too crazy. Who's got um, Isaiah nine six? Will somebody read that? Go ahead, please. Thank you so much. That's perfect. He shall be called Almighty God. Okay. Uh, John twenty twenty eight. Who's got that? Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Did I lose this thing? Are you turning that on and off? Okay. Um, my Lord and my God. And he wasn't saying, My God, like some people do. <laughs> He's referring to him. Okay. Uh, there's more passages. This is just a, a sprinkling. Uh, how about the attributes of God? Does he have the attributes? Who's got John 1.1? 1, 1? All right. In 2.24 and 25? 
All right, so he's omniscient. He can uh, read the thoughts of men, not only read them, he knows them, uh, that kind of thing. All right, can he do the works of God, John 5, 21? All right, so he can raise the dead. He is the giver of life. How about Colossians 1.16? Colossians 1.16, going once. It's on discount this week only to read it. Ah, he is the image of the invisible God, Okay. And he receives worship. Uh, we already read John twenty twenty eight, when uh, uh, Thomas uh, calls out to him, my Lord and my God. Uh, and then there's also Revelation five twelve through 14. Who might have that? And the interesting thing, of course, is in the very previous chapter, it's still it's one big scene, Revelation 4 and 5, those two chapters go together. In, in the previous chapter, the beginning of the scene before the lamb receives, the lamb makes an appearance and receives that worship, those, those exact things were said of God and that he was worthy of receiving it. And all of a sudden now it's the lamb who's worthy of receiving it, uh, which just goes to show the identity. So when people tell you nowhere in the scripture does it say that Jesus... Is, uh, is God. Uh, here we see he's being called God. He has the attributes of God. He does the mighty works of God. He receives worship, worship that belongs to God alone. So very, very clear. And then if you really, really want to nail, put the final nail in the coffin, there's two things to look at. Uh, the first one is, um, you know, if somebody sits there and says, yeah, but it never actually says, Jesus is God. Sure it does. That Jesus himself never says that he is God. Sure he does. Let's look at two killer passages. These are the ones that put the end to the debate. Somebody look up Romans 9, 5. Could have maybe written that down up here somewhere. Romans 9, 5. Start there. Actually, it's a whole section where Paul is talking about the advantages and the privileges that the people of God had, the Israelites had in that... All the, the prophecies came to them. All the, you know, revelation came to them that they should have been ahead of the power curve uh, when Jesus came. They should have believed in him and not had so many rejected him. So he's kind of establishing that privileged position which they uh, kind of squandered. But as he says, as he's developing that thought, he says this utterly uh, kind of final statement. So if somebody's got Romans 9, 5, Maybe start in verse 4 if it makes a little more sense because I think 9.5 starts right in the middle. And to them is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all. It's very hard to get past that. Not that our friends haven't tried. Um, there are some folks who like to mess with translations um, and they have, um, if you look at, for example, the RSV, the, the Revised Standard Version, which when I was a kid, they used to call the reverse standard version. Um, I grew up in, in mainline churches. 
um, mainline Presbyterian church and so on. So we made use of the, uh, the RSV. Later on, it became the New Revised Standard Version. I don't know if they corrected that. I guess I could look it up. But in the RSV, it's very interesting. They say, and to them belongs Christ, period. God, who is over all, be blessed forever. It's like, uh, you know, we just, we, we just got to put a little period there. And it's not in the original text, but we'll just put it there because, th- you know, little things like that. But no, Romans 9, 5, very, very clear. To them belongs the Christ, who is God over all. Did Jesus ever say that he himself was God? No, he never said that. Paul invented it. Yeah, turn to John chapter 8. And here we have to have a little bit of distinction. The word God, um, just like today in English, the word God in Hebrew uh, doesn't necessarily mean the God, right? The word Elohim or Eloha, uh, not Aloha, Eloha. Uh, the plural is Elohim. That is just like we use the word God. We can use it you know, with a little g, Uh, Greek gods, you know, Norse gods. It doesn't necessarily mean the God, right? We tend to capitalize it to try to emphasize that we're talking about the God. But how does God refer to himself in an age in which there were multiple gods? What does God do to say, it's me? Anybody know? Say again? Yahweh, his proper name, right? Now, anybody remember what, and that's uh, Exodus 3, Right, Moses comes and who, who do I tell him sent me? I am. That's where I was going to go. So what does it mean? I am that I am. And you look at that name. We can have a whole class on that. The I am that I am is a name of, of complete self-containment. I, I don't need anybody. I just simply am. I don't need my creation. I don't need any, I am self-existent. I am everything that needs to be. I am that I am. There's more that we can say on that. Okay, so now we get to John chapter 8, and the Jews, um, you know, we all, t- uh, t- sometimes, because uh, we're, we're still in Sunday school mentality when we're like in second grade and we still G- see Jesus in the flannel graph, and you know, that's a nice Jesus, and he goes and walks around and he hugs everybody and all the little children come to him, and we forget that Jesus uh, could take, you know, a cord of whips and, and you know, whoop some butt uh, when he needed to do that, um, here he is engaging very vigorously with the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders who are going after him for his works and for his claims and so on. Uh, let's see what happens. Verse 48. All right, thank you. So you can see uh, they understood exactly what he was saying. The fact that they wanted to stone him is what you do when somebody commits blasphemy. Here he is claiming that all those who are united to him who come to him will never die. And they're like, Everybody dies. Abraham died and prophets die. Are you saying that you're, you know, a bigger deal than Abraham? And he responds and says, yeah, as a matter of fact, Abraham looked forward to my coming, to my day. And he saw it, which is a very interesting passage that we'll have to talk about sometime. Uh, and he rejoiced uh, because, you know, we, we tend to think, you know, he's, he's gone. Abraham is dead. And uh, interesting, elsewhere in Scripture, uh, it says... Uh, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and Jesus goes out of his, of his way to say, not that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've got a cousin who was killed some years ago, um, 2006. My time just flies. And uh, whenever his birthday comes up, which is going to be this Wednesday, 
I'll talk to uh, his, um, his sister, my cousin. And, you know, initially, you know, she was like, yeah, he would have been, you know, whatever. So this year he would be uh, 54. And so I will tell her, he is 54. And she's now got it. But, you know, initially she would have said, yeah, he would have been. No, no, he is 54. Right? Time doesn't stop. What? Heaven? Time doesn't stop? Okay, we'll leave that for later. But yes, time does not stop in one sense. Um, we, we can't exist outside of time. But um, this idea that God is the God of these people who continue to live in ways that are different, they're not earthly, it's not an earthly life any longer. It will again be at some point, that kind of thing. So he's making that statement that Jesus, that, that Abraham looked forward to his day and saw it. And of course they go nuts. You know, you're not even 50 years old. How can you have seen Abraham? And then he has that killer line there at the very end. Uh, truly, truly, uh, or in the old translations, amen, amen. It's the same thing. I say to you, before Abraham was, Yahweh. That's what he said. Before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what it was. So Jesus claims for himself, not just that he's a God. He didn't say, I'm Eloha or Elohim. He claimed to be the God. So when your friends come to you and say, now we're in the Bible, that's all made up by... Okay. Now you've got the evidence, you can beat them over the head with it, um, so on. So this, this is absolutely then revolutionary. It goes to show us then that Jesus um, is indeed God. And, of course, that famous passage, John uh, 1.14, uh, we were looked at John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. So this is a very interesting point here because this is where there's a lot of misunderstanding and the catechism question is spot on. If you want a summary of years, uh, a couple of centuries of Christian dialogue and sometimes even debate as to the nature of the Christ, it's summarized perfectly in that little catechism question. What does it mean that he became flesh? What does that look like? So can I erase this? We all have that. You've taken snapshots of it or something. Need be? Okay. Here's where a lot of folks get into trouble. We uh, referenced our Jehovah Witness friends. They're not our brothers, sadly. They are our friends, though. That's where the Mormons get into trouble. A lot of folks get into trouble. So what we do is we have God... We have man. One is eternal and self-subsistent. The other one is a creature and dependent and so on. And the amazing thing is the word became flesh. We see that he takes on human nature. Uh, another place that you can see that is in Philippians chapter 2 where he says he humbled himself taking the form of a servant and so on. That's about verse 6 or maybe verse 7 of, uh, of uh, Philippians 2. What happened at that moment? The assertion of the, um, uh, of the catechism, which again, the assertion of Scripture, is that he maintains his God nature and his human nature perfectly. And that's an important point to point out because early on in church history, there was some misunderstanding about that. Some people thought, okay, well, in fact, uh, the way the Nicene folks put it, let me see if I can find it. 
they said that the divine nature was united to the human nature without conversion, composition, or confusion. Without conversion, composition, or confusion. What does that mean? There were some who were teaching that what happened is that when the two natures came together, God and man, or human, would that help? Would that throw off all the woke people, you know? Man, oh no. Yeah, it's human. It's pretty soon somebody, if they haven't already, they'll say it should be Hugh woman or I don't know, whatever. Hugh people. When these two come together, what happens? Some people said that what happens is that the God nature degrades into something less than God because it's in contact with imperfect humanity. So that was the assertion of some in the early church. Others said, no, it's the human nature that is then elevated to become something other than human. In both cases, you end up with something that is unlike the two natures. One of the natures is lost in its, in its uh, uh, purity. So when the God nature uh, uh, is, is um, in some way brought down, he no longer is quite God. He lost some of his godness. Okay, which by the way, if you lose some of your godness, you lose all of it. But uh, yeah, that's just where they, and if you elevate him, his human nature, uh, then you lose the humanity. So that doesn't work. Okay, so that was one of the, the, the problems that, that we had. The other one is that the God and human nature kind of got mixed up and and they flowed one into the other and you came up with a third nature. So you have you have a God and you have a human, but then you get sort of a demigod. You get a Hercules kind of character with Jesus. It's a third type of nature. He's not truly God, he's not truly human. He's this thing that's never existed before. You know, just combination. Uh, a hybrid, a mutt, right? You take this animal and you come with that animal and you get something that was new uh, and different from the mother and the father, right, kind of thing. That's sort of what uh, that group asserts. And the confession and the catechism say, no, both of those uh, uh, views are wrong. It's not a mixture of the two and so on, what have you. No, you have fully divine nature, fully human nature. Okay, well, once we kind of get that going, there still was some error because then what people said was, okay, so you have a God nature and a human nature. Well, the God nature belongs to God. The human nature belongs to Jesus, and each one is a person. And so what you have is this being who is two persons, and it's sort of like the God person is inhabiting the human person, kind of like a possession. And it's really two persons, not, not one, okay? Um, there's a group that's in the, in the church universal today that still holds that. That view was called Nestorianism, uh, for those who like those details. Um, ever heard of Coptic Christians in Egypt? So those guys still hold this view. Uh, they were run out of the church uh, originally, uh, but they've managed to hang on as their own thing. Because, uh, you know, sometimes people look at the Coptics, the Copts, they're sometimes called, and they think they're part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. 
uh, if you think about that part of the world, but the Eastern Orthodox Church put them out because they hold to, to this view that Jesus is two persons. Uh, but what we get in Scripture instead is this picture, when we look at all those passages that we were looking at, that he is both fully human, uh, fully human, fully God, and yet just one person, Jesus. Now, there's certain things that we have to understand about that. His God nature, because it is fully God, means that it was always existent. That never changed. His human nature has a beginning. Mary uh, conceives. Uh, From that point, the human nature begins. But it isn't that Jesus will be walking along and all of a sudden, oh, he get possessed by God and, you know, he he was always God. Now, Now, you might sit there and say, how does... He have a human nature and the, Jesus, and, and the God nature at the same time. How does that work? I have no idea. You have no idea. For all of us, in our experience, we have one nature. One, every being, we think of a being, right? A creature. One, uh, God is a being, a being in three persons. Even that, we, we uh, can't comprehend how that works. For each and every one of us, one person is one nature. One nature, one person. That's... Easy, we look and we see a spider, it's a spider. We see a dog, we see a tree, you know, one nature, right, corresponding to that being, uh, that kind of thing. Somehow with, with Jesus, he is both fully human, he's got that nature just like you and I, we can relate to that part, but at the same time, he is God. I don't know, is he thinking back and forth, you know, like, it's, it's not like there's two voices in his head is the point I'm trying to get at, nor is he shifting into and out, is He's just, he's one. How that works is part of the mystery. Now, there are some consequences of that that are very, very important. Uh, For example, um, it means that Jesus, if he's fully human, has everything that humans have. So that means he has a soul. And it's a human soul, just like you have a soul. Jesus' soul is not his God nature. Some people kind of looked at Jesus like if he's some sort of, like, like if our flesh, our bodies are just some kind of vessel and you pour a soul into it. And so we pour a human soul into ours. Uh, Jesus has a God soul poured into it. No, no, no. He is a human with a human soul just like you and me. The God nature is not his soul, okay? So that's an important thing to pick up on. Uh, he has emotions, Okay? He has a will, and God has a, a human will, and he has a, a divine will, because God has a will. And uh, the three persons of the Trinity, we've already talked about that, and so I'm not going to you know, uh, rehash all that, but the three persons of the Trinity, these three persons who are in perfect unity in terms of their will, in terms of their being, actually, but also in terms of their will, uh, that's that divine will that Jesus has, and yet he has a human will. Do we ever see that highlighted? Where do you ever see the two wills make, uh, make an appearance that's, that's hard to miss? Okay, um, I hadn't thought about that as an expression of will. We may have to um, look at that sometime and see if, if his saying, uh, what does this have to do with me, if it's just his humanity speaking. So... Now, Jesus could get irritated, yeah, because he has feelings. And again, he's, he's not, you know, the, the view that we got, and I keep referring to this, but some of you are too young, you know, to pick up on it. But, you know, a lot of us just kind of see Jesus as some guy driving around in a, you know, Volkswagen minivan with flowers on the side, and he walks around with Birkenstocks and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
But no, Jesus, Jesus, uh, he, he had full range of emotions. Garden, yeah. Is that where you were going? Yep. Yeah, I'm thinking of the garden as a good one because he says, not my will, but your will. Um, so very clearly, human will. Uh, again, in the early church, there was a group of folks who kind of said, no, there must be a, a united will that comes together and blends into one. And, uh, uh, but if that's the case, then Jesus loses his humanity. And if he loses his humanity, then he can't do what 1 Timothy 2.5 says. He is the only mediator between God and man. And so, again, there's that word only again. Uh, so Jesus must be fully human. He cannot represent you to live the perfect life that none of us is capable of living or to die in our place if he's less than human. And he can't be perfect and sinless unless he's fully God. Does that make sense? Okay, or, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it was muted, uh, but uh, Jesus and, and, and the uh, uh, coming together of the two natures, again, without composition, that means blending into the two without confusing, you know, that sort of thing. That aspect is a mystery, but there's certain things we can look at. When Jesus was born, uh, I'm sorry, he couldn't talk, right? He couldn't talk and he couldn't comprehend what his mom was saying to him and his dad. Uh, there's some freaky little things that you've seen out there where Jesus was talking as a baby. You've heard about that? Like, like an infant baby, you know, because like, some people sit there and say, well, he's God. I mean, that'd be kind of freaky if a little boy just starts, I'm talking about like an eight-day-old eight boy turns around and starts conversing with you. I'd be like, you know, <laughs> spinning heads and whatever. And, and, uh, yeah, because that, that'd, be, that'd be like messed up. <laughs> Jesus did not do those things. He did not understand language. He had to learn language. And the scripture talks about his learning. It talks about his learning obedience. Now, that is misunderstood to mean that at some point he failed. You can be taught something and get it right the first time. All right? Maybe not if you're me, but some of you are better at things. And you can learn stuff and you can, and, but he had to be, you know, shown things and taught. He had to learn how to tie his shoes or buckle his sandals or whatever they, you know, do in Palestine. He had to learn how to brush his hair. He had to learn how to brush his teeth and all that other stuff. Uh, with camel hair probably is what they use for brushing their teeth. Um, did you know they used to use elephant bristles back in the old days, like 19th century? Yeah, you know that? For tooth, that's messed up, but it's true. Um, anyway, he had to learn all those different things. So uh, when you talk about things like the coming of, of um, the final day, the great day, and the return of man, and Jesus says, I don't know when that is. It falls under that same purview. Uh, Jesus is a human being. And it is true that he demonstrates qualities of God like he knows what's in the heart of man and so on and so on. Uh, but just like he needed the Holy Spirit to empower him to do things. I mean, he wasn't superhuman. And, and understand what I just said. Wait, are you saying he's not God? No, I said he's not superhuman. When he walks on water, his human nature remains human. Now, that might blow your mind because, oh, but he walked on water. Who walks on water? Peter. Didn't Peter walk on water? Now, who made Peter walk on water? 
Well, his faith doesn't do anything, but his faith is what grabs a hold. But who actually did make... God enables Peter to walk on water. Now, when God works in this way, it's always through his Holy Spirit. We're kind of getting off a little bit on things that maybe I'll have to defend later as we get to them. But the Holy Spirit made Peter... Peter did not turn into something different. He did not, humanly speaking, gain the ability to skim across the surface of the water. He supernaturally was enabled through the Spirit of God to walk. Jesus' human nature did the same thing. Do you see that? Because if Jesus is somehow superhuman, he can shoot lasers out of his eyes and all this other stuff, he's no longer human and he's no longer the mediator. He remains fully human, empowered by the Spirit, like the prophets were. Oh, you're saying he's only a prophet? No, of course not. I've just said he's God and all that. But like the prophets were empowered to do things like make axe heads float and raise uh, you know, dead, uh, dead child uh, the, of the widow of Nain and all that kind of stuff. So he was empowered by the Spirit. So that interplay of the three persons is a bit mysterious to us. And we can't quite climb into the mind of God and figure, figure that out, Timothy. But it's clear that there are human limitations in physical and, yes, what he knows in knowledge. Uh, as, as humans. Now, could the Father reveal it to him through the Spirit? Yeah. Uh, but he admits in that one passage, that's something that's not been revealed to my human side, as it were. And if you sit there and you say, well, how can that be? How can he know everything at, as God and at the same time not know certain things? I don't know. And if I tried to tell you, oh, here's how it works, I'd be lying to you. I'd be speculating. I'd be making something up. Does that help? It doesn't answer your question, but it, yeah. And I think that's something that we have to wrestle with. Um, okay, our time is almost up, so let me just um, wrap it up and say there's also some other things that we need to keep in mind, you know, one nature, uh, two natures, one person, two wills, things like that. There's, there's some implications for that. Um, our Roman Catholic friends, uh, for example, when we do the Lord's Supper, uh, they believe that the bread and the wine literally turn into the body and blood. Now, there, we can get into why we don't think that's the case, uh, how difficult it would be to have a transmutation of that kind. By the way, it's the only miracle that Roman Catholics say is a miracle because you don't see it. That's the miracle, that you don't see it happening. Okay. Um, but it's very, and, and, and by, the, by the way, Lutherans have something very similar. Uh, Luther struggled with um, this as well and, and said, well, you know, that kind of is obscene. Those were his words. The idea, you know, of, of, of transubstantiation, the bread that can't, the bread's just bread. But it does say, this is my body, this is my blood, so he has to be here somewhere. So they came up with something called consubstantiation, which is the idea that, God, that, that Jesus' human nature is over, around, and under the elements. So when you're around the bread, his nature hovers around the bread and around the wine and that kind of stuff. The problem with both of those views is it denies the humanity of Christ. Well, yes, absolutely, denies the humanity of Christ. Because if he's fully human, he can't break apart into little bits and pieces and be all over the planet. Right? But he's resurrected. We saw him resurrect, right? We saw his resurrected form. Was he a gaseous monster kind of thing? No, he was human. They poked him. They thought, one of them thought he was a ghost. No, 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 come here and poke my sides, touch me. And then, oh, give me some of that fish, let me eat. I'm going to eat like the rest of you. Fully human. 
Yes, raised from the dead. Oh, but he zoomed from place to place. You know, one moment he's here, the next moment he's inside the, the upper room. With, he went through the doors. Is that because Jesus' body gained superhuman qualities? Was Adam zipping around the universe by, you know, speed of thought? No. His zipping into the room is the same kind of thing as the walking on water. You get that? Enabled by the Spirit to be able to show them it's, you know, that. He's still human. Resurrected human, he'll never grow sick and all that. But when he ascends into heaven, his body is stuck in one place. And he said that. He said, it's better for me to send the Spirit to you because otherwise the ministry is going to be limited. If Jesus had remained, you know, everything would have to be around Jesus. And we'd have to go to him and there'd be lines and everything else. And, you know, I mean, really, there would be lines. There was lines when he was healing. So, you know, you'd want to go talk to him. You'd have to go set an appointment. And, okay, Jesus is kind of busy with the 8 billion people on the planet. You can see him in 2048 and all that. So he says he's going to send the Spirit. And then the Spirit inhabits the people. And all of a sudden, this church thing takes off and it's amazing and he's everywhere and you go and you help somebody and you're being Jesus to that person and it's utterly amazing so you see how that works his human nature is still human the minute you ask him to be so we all sit there and we all do communion at the same time there's not enough Jesus to be everywhere you see the point we're denying his human nature when we claim that he is ubiquitous all over the planet every time other than the fact that's kind of silly to think that that you know now can his spiritual nature be everywhere oh yes that because remember he's still fully God and God is omnipresent so by the way there was um, uh, you know Luther was wrestling with that and it's like still not 100% satisfied that's the best I can come up with and Zwingli who was kind of like the the first reform guy uh, out out of um, uh, Switzerland uh, he comes along and He's like, well, it's just, a, it's just a bare memorial. The Lord's Supper is nothing more than just remembering because we all know it's silly that things will not turn one thing into the other. And they couldn't get along on that one point. They, they differed. And then Calvin comes along some years later. That was in 1529 when uh, those two got together, Zwingli and Luther, at, at a German town called Marburg. And it was called the Marburg Colloquy. And they figured out, they agreed on every point except for that one point, the presence of Christ. And uh, uh, Calvin comes along, publishes his Institutes of the Christian Religion in 1536, and Luther says, ah, that's it. Had he been there, uh, that would have answered the question. Calvin was only 20 years old in 1529 uh, and was still in college, and so uh, they didn't have his, his wisdom on that. But his answer was, Jesus is present spiritually. And then it does no violence to his nature for him to be everywhere spiritually. But it does violence to his human nature to say that he is present everywhere, uh, humanly speaking. Does that make sense? So there's consequences to this. But the thing that we walk away from, that the catechism question here, we wrap everything up, that the catechism question gives us is that it puts all those things together. It shows that he remains fully God without surrendering any aspect of his God, Godship, Godness, He's fully human without surrendering any aspect of what it means to be human in one person. And it says here, you know, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And if you get that, you pretty much have all Christology and you've just wrapped up like the first three centuries of 
of Christian uh, theology, which is almost what they spent the first, you know, three centuries, two and a half centuries doing, is figuring out these things. I'll finish with one last thing um, that G.I. Williamson points out, and I think it's very good. He talks about the names. He talks about the names. Um, the word Lord, you know, uh, in, in the uh, catechism, it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think about the names, um, Lord is a reference, as you probably already know, in the Old Testament, they did not want to say the word Yahweh because you do not take the Lord's name in vain. And so they began to use the word Lord uh, as a substitute. And so you see that in your Old Testament text. If you go to a psalm, for example, and you see Lord with a capitalized letter L, but the rest are lowercase, that's strictly the word Lord, which is Hebrew is Adonai. The way we use, you know, an English Lord or Lady, that kind of thing, that, that kind of Lord. But if you see the Lord with all small caps, that is all the letters are capitalized, but the O-R-D are smaller in version, but they're still capped. That's a convention that we use in printing to represent the name Yahweh. If you were to look in the Hebrew, it actually would have the divine name Yahweh. So if you look at Psalm 110 and it says, the Lord said to my Lord, and you're like, that's confusing. The Lord said, nah, nah, nah. It's actually the Adonai said to Yahweh. Uh, actually, the other way around. Uh, Yahweh said to my Adonai. Yahweh said to my Lord. Oh, now it makes sense. Right? So we kind of get that. By the time you get to the New Testament, the, the, the reference to Jesus as Lord is giving him the divine name. It's a recognition of that. So even when Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God, it's, you don't even need the second part, my God. My Lord is referring to that. So there's that aspect. And the word Jesus, which is nothing but the, uh, the Greek, Yesu, Greek word uh, for the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, uh, which means G- uh, God saves, um, highlights his humanity. And then the word Christ highlights his office, what he came to be, what role he was to play. The word Christ is nothing but the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, Messiah. So it's a very interesting that you get it even in the catechism question. Uh, the way that if you look at the catechism question, the way it breaks out, uh, it brings all three of those out. It says that he is the only redeemer, right? Being the eternal son of God, there's the Lord aspect. Who became man, there's the Jesus aspect. And so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures. There's Lord and Jesus. There's the divine and the human. And one person the Christ forever who gets brought together into this one person who has this role to play as, as the Messiah. So when we say our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is not a last name. It's a title. It's a, it's a role that he's played. So does that make sense? Kind of just gives you a little bit of the nature. Jesus highlights his human nature. Lord highlights his divine nature. Christ uh, highlights the, uh, the role that he's been called to do. Okay, good. Any questions? Comments? Really important stuff. The uh, <clears throat> um, uh, nature of, of Christ, when it's been misunderstood, our Mormon friends uh, believe that you as a human being can become God, literally you can become God. They think that Jesus ascended into Godhood. Uh, others believe uh, that uh, Jesus was something better. He was empowered by God, and so he became something other than human, but not fully God. Those are the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, there are some who claim that um, Jesus became God at his baptism. He was just a human tooling along 
and uh, was such a, such a good guy that God decided he was going to make him his avatar. And so he drops, you know, a little, little uh, God beat on him and he becomes this divine thing, you know, at his baptism. Not that he always was God. All those are aberrations. But if you get that catechism question right, uh, you'll be covered and you'll be good. Yeah, I mean, without getting into too much detail, generally speaking, whenever we talk about God in the world doing his thing, it's the Holy Spirit at work. Um, and we even see that, you know, 1 Corinthians 6 and elsewhere talks about the Holy Spirit is what indwells us. Now, at the same time, we talk about the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. And, you know, in John fourteen six, Jesus says, uh, the Father will send uh, the Spirit. And in John 15, um, uh, six, he says, um, the Father and I, which is a very important point, are the ones who send the Spirit. So uh, it proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. I shouldn't have said it. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, so it's, it's still appropriate to speak of the, the Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. Uh, but yes, the Holy Spirit properly in his role is what inhabits uh, people. Yeah, this, this is why when we were looking at the Trinity, I was saying that today the Trinity is terribly misunderstood. Evangelicals who claim to believe in the Trinity have not studied the Trinity in years, I mean literally decades. And we, so we have a real deterioration in our understanding of the Trinity. You know, you hear people talking about, it's like putting on different hats. I'm a father and I'm a son. And I'm a, no, it's not, and we already discussed all that. But it has, compl- it has implications for everything else later for who we are as Christians, who Jesus is, and so on. Okay, I do think we're going to have to quit. Uh, If you have any other questions, let's keep them for next time, or you can catch me uh, uh, later on. Uh, Or you can sit in our newcomers class, which is today. Uh, Exciting. All right, let's go ahead and close with prayer. Father in heaven, we uh, we admit that we have uh, stepped into some pretty mysterious stuff when we're talking about the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, even those three words, Lord Jesus Christ, and all that they entail uh, and yet you do tell us in your word in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine that these things that have been revealed are for us to know and for us to understand. And so you have given us enough to at least comprehend those things which are revealed. And so we pray that we would have uh, a better understanding through the scripture of the nature of our Lord uh, precisely because it changes and affects our salvation. Uh, there is no salvation unless these things are exactly uh, as we've seen laid out. Uh, Thank you, Father, for your willingness to send your Son. And we thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to uh, become a human being and to suffer and to uh, ultimately die in our place. And even now you continue to serve us as you uh, serve as our mediator, our intercessor. And we're thankful that your Spirit is amongst us and that your Spirit empowers us and enables us and equips us to live lives uh, that gratify you. Um, And we pray, Lord, that that would continue even as we enter into worship now. We pray this in the name of Jesus, because he alone makes these things possible. Amen.